welcome to Pod Culture Oz, an Australian pop culture podcast about genre fiction. We're very excited to be here with you again. I'm your host, Philippa, and once again, I'm joined by my co-host, Dave. Mild-mannered reporter for a great Australian podcast. And Nick. We're not the pop cultural heroes you need right now, but we are the heroes you deserve. <laughs> That's probably debatable. This episode, <laughs> we're also joined by a guest host, novelist, comic writer, and game designer, Christian D. Reed from Crowland Publishing. Welcome, How you doing? Welcome, Christian. Please tell our listeners a bit about yourself and what you like to read and play. Hi, I'm Christian. Um, I've been a professional writer for about 20 years now, uh, working in various sort of gig spaces. I've been a computer games designer. I've worked on games like Secret World and Urban Empire, and I did a Warhammer 40k Eternal Crusade game and Sega 3 and a bunch of other stuff like that. I've written the Five Light Case Files novels. I've written uh, Nil Prey, which is a, a new weird fantasy. Uh, I wrote some RPG stuff for Chaosium and some other TT RPG stuff. And I'm sort of um, working at the moment in the TT RPG space. I've got a Kickstarter that will hopefully be out in April for what we're doing is a sort of a fantasy folk horror wicker punk thing as for what I like to read I'm um, sort of the usual uh, geek interests um, uh, I just was looking around my just recently read pile and I read Gideon the Ninth which I really really loved uh, I read the first piece of YA fiction I think I've read since I was a kid which was called The Last Apprentice which I would have been obsessed with as a child if I'd read them just watched Strange and Norrell again and Taboo nice sort of back to back thing Legion which I loved speaking of superhero stuff and gaming I don't game so much anymore actually I'm, I'm a bit disabled these days with the old multiple sclerosis but I've been a Warcraft guy for a long time and generally speaking any action RPG there you go and of course the highlight of his career was being my housemate and running a game for me at a convention that I ran so you know oh yeah that was a long time ago that was like early 90s man because we're old now no I think it was mid 90s please and we also we ran um, a freeform campaign together for a couple of years so yeah, that yeah was we were involved in that stuff yeah, long time ago uh, which I have fun. talked about in a previous episode so Oh, well, there you go. Hi, Um, everyone from the old days listening to this. Well, some of them hope maybe. Anyway, so we're very excited to have you with us today, Christian, because I think you're a bit of a specialist or have a lot of knowledge in our episode topic, which is about the politics of superheroes. We planned this episode months ago, and it seems like world events have once again made it very topical. I feel that we're very much the zeitgeist with our podcast. Recently, author and popular fiction creator Alan Moore has been very outspoken about the state of superheroes. More about that shortly. For now, what are your initial thoughts on this topic, Nick? Oh, initial thoughts. Well, I've got a lot of thoughts and I might get into them as we go through, but I thought maybe I should just quickly talk about the the kinds of superheroes stuff that I've come across uh, as a kind of precursor to that. Um, I never really read comic books as a kid. I've sort of really only encountered them as a, as a kind of late adolescent and uh, an adult because of the just explosion of, of comic book texts that, that's happened. I mean, I watched the Keaton Batman movies when they came out. That was about it. I quite enjoyed the Nolan Batman films, and I think that's just because I'm a sucker for gritty realism and spec fic. I can't stand the Marvel films. This will become apparent the more we talk about them. Uh, the characters are bad and the writing is bad, and I pretty much I boycott them now, uh, which is too late. I mean, I had this moment where, where I said to people, oh, I boycott Marvel films. And then I went back through the list of all the Marvel films and realized I'd seen every single one up to that date, even though I'd said I'd been boycotting them for years. And so then since then, I've actually properly started boycotting them. So I don't think I've watched one since. Oh, look, I can't remember the last one I watched, but I just refuse now. Beyond that, kind of most of the superhero stuff I like, I think stuff that tries to comment on the genre itself in some way. So it's things like Superman, Red Sun or Watchmen or V for Vendetta. Although there is one superhero text that I uncomplicatedly like uh, and I'm trying to figure out why I uncomplicatedly like it and that's the card game Sentinels of the Multiverse which I don't know Christian if you've come across that I'd be interested to hear your thoughts if you have but I mean it's basically it's a it's a kind of card game board game hybrid where you, you play a superhero that's sort of a uh, based off like an almost satirical version of a real world superhero uh, so it's got characters like Batman and the Flash and all that kind of stuff in it and it crosses the MC uh, MCU kind of um, yeah. DC uh, boundary and so I like I quite like it and I think I like it only because it's clever as a game and also as an engagement with the genre like it, you know it uh, but it, it for me it becomes the foil the, to to the kind of broad bits of superhero stuff and culture which I, I kind of broadly don't like. So it's, just, don't um, it's part of a long tradition of Marvel and DC have both had analogs of each other's characters since the 1930s. You know, so it, it's it's part of that that tradition. And then um, uh, RPGs is on it all the time. Champions, the Champions Universe, which went on to be an MMO, is just clearly Marvel with the serial numbers filed off. Yeah. Stuff like that. So they they like <laughs> there is a problem with superhero 
experience from day one in this this profound lack of originality going on. So yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know Sentinels itself very well. I'm, I'm certainly aware that it's it's in that analog space. Yeah, and I'm trying. I've been trying to figure out in prepping for the episode, like why why do I why is the only superhero text that I actually really enjoy one that strips out all the story and is literally just about the comic book violence. And I think it's, <laughs> yeah, and I think it's just because it's honest. Like it's some mysteries solve themselves. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. What about you, Dave? Uh, like Nick, I was never really a big uh, reader of superhero fiction. I feel like I've said that for like three episodes in a row now. So can we talk about Tolkien or David Eddings or Piers Anthony soon? Sure. <laughs> uh, in my head, superhero comics have always been a just for kids genre you know it's got people with tights and capes and over the top superpowers Uh, I I grew up watching Adam West and Super Friends and part of me still wants to see the characters that way it's not like I live under a rock I've watched MCU and the current DC films and they're definitely aimed at more quote mature audiences but they do push a very narrow view of the world and I think that there's a significant lack of diversity in scope or theme. Christian, as someone who writes comics and works closely with other creators, I imagine you have some thoughts on this too? I do. I do. Um, Look, I've been reading superhero comics since I was about five years old. I have read them my entire life, although I don't read the contemporary stuff at the moment. I'm just, I'm very divorced from the current state uh, of superhero comics. Uh, As I've sort of lost interest in about 2005 or so, I've become more and more interested in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s comics. become quite fascinated with those. So I love superheroes. I think that they're charming. I think that they are whimsical. I think that they are funny. I think that they are, uh, when you are a smart for, 10-year-old and a smart 10-year-old, it means a hell of a lot to you, you know? And, and I think the comics, especially in the 70s and the 80s, as we, we came out of the uh, the more pro- reactive 1960s, which were, you know, much less revolutionary than people would have you believe, there was a real attempt to bring social and cultural engagement to superheroes. So Green Arrow taking Greenland around America and going, racism, did you know it's bad? Or Denny O'Neill's question, which was a, this weird Robert Percy influence uh, on, on the grim and gritty superhero vigilante. Jim Starlin, my personal favourite, his acid flashback spirituality. He was a Vietnam veteran or, or a Vietnam war photographer who got super, super into acid and started writing um, space opera. And yeah, That's a comic I could read. Right, Adam, Adam Warlock's the best, man. You'd love it. He's like you know, Captain Marvel with Space Charm. And, and when I was a little... <laughs> I loved the didactic nature of comics. I loved it. Like Flash, Flash used to have flash facts where we just come up on the little panel. We'd be like, Flash would say, if I move at light speed, time will dilate. And I'm like, what? That's, what's that? That sounds awesome. Or um, again, Adam Warlock might be there going like, I've just destroyed the evil man beast. And now I'll stare broodingly into the sun and quote Keats. And I'm like, oh my God, this is incredible. And you know, you don't get that in Piers Anthony. In the Piers Anthony, <laughs> these weird underpants related fantasy novels. Yeah. So, I don't think superheroes have been just kid stuff for a really, really long time. So my thought is I kind of enjoy the concept of them, but I've never been a comic reader of any genre. And I thought about that and it's because... I read visually, I picture things as I read and I find that uh, comic illustrated graphic novel kind of stuff takes that away from me and it, it's I find it really hard to read them. But I've played games based on superheroes. In fact, I played a, a DC game that campaign that Christian was in where we had to play ourselves as superheroes. That was kind of fun. Uh, um, yeah. Do you remember that? And, um, yeah, I do. That was great. And I, I enjoy playing a superhero, but I, what gets me when I play DC Heroes Online is all the people who just recreate Batman and Superman. No, no very few people recreate Wonder Woman uh, and The Flash. And they just call themselves Flash 276 or Batman 888, whatever. And they just have no interest in creating a new character and a new look and making a story for themselves. And that's what I enjoy doing. They just want to be the iconic character. And I'm like, well, that's just boring. That story's already been told. You know, whatever. That's for four-year-old. Well, yeah, and I get that for a four-year-old, but, like, these are adults. Exactly. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm at. I enjoy, I've, I've discovered, you know, I discovered as an adult I enjoy role-playing, you know, tabletop role-playing and also computer game role-playing as a superhero, but I don't feel the need to replicate the existing character, you know, the iconic character set. And, and I enjoy doing it with friends because that's what makes it interesting for me. Anyway, moving on. In his recent interview with Deadline, Alan Moore talked about his dislike for the current state of the comic industry. He also said, and I quote, they are a thing that was in 
invented in the late 1930s for children and they are perfectly good as children's entertainment. But if you try to make them for the adult world, then I think it becomes kind of grotesque. This comment was widely reported at the time, often out of context, with people pointing to Moore's own work. However, he did go on to criticise and disavow his own Joker story, 1988's Batman, The Killing Joke, in that interview as being too dark and too violent. He also stated that all the superheroes have been stolen from their creators. This, inter- this interview has echoes of one he did in 2017, where he said that superhero movies have blighted cinema and to a degree they have blighted culture. We'll talk about that a bit more later. Honestly, for me, I just find these movies formulaic and tedious and there's not a lot of stuff getting made because Marvel is sucking up the budgets with these superhero movies. A lot of the smaller budget indie films and minor studio stuff I used to like just isn't getting made anymore. Christian, what do you think about this? Well, I mean, I think it's hard to argue. Superhero films are very good. How how many really actually sort of legitimately artistically ambitious films are there i would say the 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 nolan batman films they're they're you know they're pretty well made they're pretty i mean they fall apart at the end that third film's a mess right but uh what else i liked aquaman it was a good rollicking adventure and not to postpone the drums that was pretty good um <laughs> what, what else uh right already like you sort of you have to rack your brains to go i think this is a good film maybe if you're maybe if you're like you've got the terrifying politics of a nightmare you think that winter soldier the second captain america film where it's revealed that only powerful blonde men can save us from the corrupt government surely that didn't have any kind of like weird political blowback so yeah yeah you know um i I just don't think they're good Uh, i I just don't think they're a particularly ambitious genre of film I do find the first iron man film interesting because i don't think they had a cinematic universe in mind and i absolutely and I, f- and I, I know Iron Man's like a major character, but he wasn't one of the major characters when they made it. So it was kind of an interesting decision to go with it. And I think Robert Downey Jr. did a really good job in that film. But, uh, you know, and, and of all of them, and I haven't seen all of them, um, that's probably the one that I would rewatch. And there's interesting stuff going on there. And I think Nick's going to have a bit of a talk about that later. Yeah, that's probably the only one I wouldn't have any time for. And Nick, what about your thoughts on it? Do you enjoy uh, these big budget movies? Yeah, look, not at all. I think, I think Christian's nailed it. Um, they're just not very good movies. They're, you know, the story's incoherent. They're boring. The characters are one-dimensional. The plots lean so heavily on Deus Ex Machina that the, the stories often end up defying causality or they've just got to invent time loops to get out of the stupid plot holes they've, they've built for themselves. But I think the thing that really, really frustrates me about them is that they're just a marketing machine and they sell you your own desires back to you in the laziest imaginable way. That Sometimes they just read them straight off Twitter and then just do them on screen and, and the audience goes, cool, that's what I wanted. It's 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 kind of worse than chewing gum. And I think the example for me of just how bad they are as a as a as a piece of culture is uh, there's a there's a character in one of them called Valkyrie. I think she's from the Thor movies. She gets played by Tessa Thompson. I don't really care which movie she's in because I'm not putting any more runtime towards learning these things. But she announced at a San Diego Comic Con that her character was bisexual, and then that was later confirmed by studio execs. And look, I know we live in a world where everything is intertextual or hypertextual, and that canon as a kind of concept is frequently spread across multiple channels television you know um comics films the whole lot like i get that i do get that the world has changed and text has changed but it's not good enough to announce this sort of stuff at a con instead of just writing it into your story like it's just so boring and so lazy and it's incredibly contemptuous of fans yeah i think it's cowardly yeah Yeah. and 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 sort of beyond cowardly right it's like it's kind of currying favor with a with a huge blob of fandom that wants lgbtiq inclusion and they know that they read it on twitter so they go i know what we'll do we'll just have a bi actress announce that her character is bi at a con and the fans will go wild and they do and it's like ah just stop it stop doing that and stop letting them get away with it but uh, it's also just just i can't believe how lazy the writing is even once you get into the movies there's like literally every film has this idiotic shining bauble to distract the audience from how bad everything else about the movie is the MacGuffin it literally shines like the tesseract is blue and glowy as is <laughs> as is tony stark's little blue glowy chest thing um and all the gems that thanos is chasing are blue and glowy there's always a blue glowy bauble that's the MacGuffin, and it, none of it matters where it came from doesn't matter who made it doesn't matter what it actually does is mostly irrelevant most of the time i just yeah i can't get over just how few consequences there are for anything in any of these stories um 
But uh, look, I could go on, but <laughs> but I've said enough. I think already about this. I, I just think they're just they're just crap. They're bad. I just, just you know, yeah. I just I was remembering. Um, I think it was one of the what was the Star Wars ripoff uh, Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy. Yeah. The bit where the guy where poor old Lee Pace is a good actor and he's there and he's makeup like oh my god it's a new pool just just get through this scene he comes out with the with the device it's like if he ever uses it it will reshape space and time and then he shoots the guys with it and then they're like oh they've been shot with the space and time destroying weapon and they just get up and brush themselves off and then they're like oh let's keep fighting and I'm like what the why, why, why am I watching this film why am yeah. I scared of Space Lee Pace now like, yeah, Space Lee Pace <laughs> I feel terrible because this is so dumb why why have you wasted my time they are they are a waste of time. I mean, that's it. the thing is that I mean they're just incoherent stories about bright and shiny objects. There's no consequences for anything. And I think to, to go back to kind of Moore's point about stories for children, they're not stories for children. They're stories by children because stories for children have carefully constructed plots and well crafted morals at their core. They're actually works of great art on their own. Good stories for, for children. These are stories by children, and that's terrible. Okay, what about you, Dave? Yeah, so I I completely agree with Nick. I think. I think just going back to something Christian said about how the, you know, the, you, you love the didactic nature of the old comics and, you know, they're, they're not just for kids and haven't been for a lot of time. I, I actually think that kids are smarter than you know, then they're given credit for, especially by execs at big companies who just want to sell them lollies pretty much. So look, I, I tolerate the blockbusters because blockbusters aren't supposed to challenge you. And, and that's fine. Like I honestly don't need an Arnie film. God, that's dating me. Arnie hasn't made a blockbuster in 15 years, but like I, I, don't need Conan to, to have a moral. But it does, doesn't it? It's, you know, um, kill your enemies, see them driven before you. Yeah, the lamentations lamentations the women. That's the moral. Oh, is that the moral? <laughs> <laughs> no. This is a creed. <laughs> it's a creed. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Conan is a religion. That's fantastic. So I think, I think, you know, these days there's a dissonance between the larger than life archetypal nature of superheroes and the need for complex character and story. Modern writers and viewers don't see that or ignore it. And the result is simple crap masquerading as quote mature entertainment i just want to say yeah yeah sorry just real quick i just want to return back to this um this whole corporate humanitarianism that they that they agree with and this whole um pushing a progressive agenda a socially progressive agenda because i mean it's a lie it's a, it's a really insidious lie i mean if your idea of confronting homophobia is that in the background two women kiss in star wars you're not politically engaged you're just a data point for marketing yeah and and I think that this is it hides the fact that these films are produced in fairly unethical situations. I mean, Marvel finances the films mainly through Saudi Arabia and the US military. And if you think that Chris Pratt, a handsome Dumbo going to Hillsong is some sort of horrific social crime, but you are happy to give money, and you are, when you buy the tickets to Marvel, you are handing cash to the people who make the genocide in Yemen happen. You know, um, and the head of Marvel Comics is a close personal advisor to Donald Trump. So I, I just find this 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 self-righteous, oh, look, it's a progressive agenda because Tessa Thompson said that her character was bisexual with no textual support. Ugh, it's so infuriating because bad stuff is happening and these fans are funding it. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> no, I agree. That was a good rant. <laughs> and it's going to be a bit of a ranty yeah. episode, I think. I which is fun. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it should be called Rants for World Peace, not Privatising World Peace. <laughs> Speaking of privatising World Peace, uh, Nick, you've mentioned to us why one scene in particular where Tony Stark says in Iron Man that he's going to privatise world peace as something that uh, you want to comment on. What is it about this concept that concerns you as a message? Uh, buckle up, kiddies. Here comes the truth bomb or something. <laughs> so so listen, this, this idea of privatising world peace has bothered me ever since I first saw it. And like you, Flip, I quite enjoyed the first Iron Man film. It was kind of rollicking and silly and fun. And Robert Downey Jr. is always fun to watch. And who wouldn't want a suit of flying power armour, really? Um, I mean, I can think of a lot of people who wouldn't, but just... And Jeff Bridges, I mean, he's one of my favourites. Yeah, Yeah, and he's great as well. And like at that point, like you, I didn't feel like it was gearing up to be this enormous, you know, kind of global epic dominant thing. Yeah, like um, I just thought, cool, what a fun movie. But in the middle of the second movie, I think he says he's privatised world pace and – 
and it's the, the, the scene's a really interesting one because there's Tony Stark in front of a bunch of kind of, I don't know, generic US government people who might be senators or might be bureaucrats. It's hard to tell. They're all sitting on a raised bench like, you know, like a judicial hearing and, and they're basically trying to figure out how can they put boundaries around this man who has this super weapon and likes to, you know, cross international borders to kill people without any kind of process, due process behind it whatsoever. And and as the scene unfolds... Like a hero he does. Yeah, right. And and it, it kind of, as the scene unfolds, it becomes extremely apparent that you as the viewer are meant to get on board with Tony Stark as the good guy here. And the government's meant to be a bit of a problem. And so the film sort of shows him as this expert in the kind of surgical violence that we all understand as an appropriate type of war to be making in the 21st century. He's kind of a walking drone strike with a sense of humor, right? And the, and the, the film's kind of childlike morality also kind of makes this sort of warfare out to be really easy to do because there's obviously an objective objectively bad people and obviously and objectively good ones. And all you need is someone who can tell the difference and kill the bad ones. And I mean, this feeds into the very real world kind of theater of Obama announcing the death of Osama bin Laden, you know, with getting up in, in front of the Oval Office and saying, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Like, you know, this is, I mean, this is, this is the politics of Tony Stark, right? Is, is surgical yeah. drone strikes on objectively bad people. But I mean, one of the things about this scene is that, you know, Stark, you know, eventually Stark says something like, I've privatized world peace and there's uproar and the hearing ends and there's no ability to regulate Stark. And the film depicts this as okay because Stark is shown as kind of more agile, kind of less constrained by international treaties or laws. There's no ham, he's never, not hamstrung by anything. There's no brakes on his action. He's able to quickly make determinations about who should live or die and far better than the bureaucrats who are trying to bring him to heel. So he's essentially making a Ronald Reagan argument here. Government's not the solution to your problems. Government is the problem. Yeah. And I feel like this is a through line in the Marvel films that can only be described as a kind of hyper individualistic neoliberalism. Right, yeah. which is, uh, I mean, neoliberalism is the kind of dominant political philosophy of our age. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure Christian can say more about the way that, that comic books kind of evolve over the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s. But I mean, so does neoliberalism. It's in the background to all of these texts as they evolve and grow. I mean, neoliberalism as a political philosophy stretches back to the 1920s in some forms. Uh, it stretches back to at least the Walter Lippmann colloquialism in 1938. And it's a philosophy that we all know by now puts the economy and individual self-interest at the center of politics. Core idea is that no government could hope to understand or operate something as enormous as a market better than the market itself could self-regulate. In contrast, any individual... Uh, sorry, any given individual driven by self-interest could perceive the segments of the market that impact them and make the best choice for themselves between the varying options on offer. You're seeing the kind of Tony Stark line here? I think... And, and again, like I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Christian has to say about the 1940s for comic books because the 1940s makes neoliberalism work because it's in the 1940s that a whole bunch of people suddenly wake up and go, holy shit, the nation state's a problem. You know, Germany's just killed 6 million people. And if we look a bit closely, we've all been doing this for ages as well. So Hayek writes in 1942, uh, The Road to Serfdom, about totalitarianism, saying that totalitarianism starts with any state at all telling people how to behave. It doesn't just end up with the Nazis and Stalin. It starts with any form of, of state organization. And Friedman comes along in 1970 and writes, the social responsibility of business into increase, is to increase its profit, which basically, you know, outlines this argument that unfettered capitalism will produce the best results for everyone as long as it's just left to its own devices. So this, and this kind of coincides with, you know, the development of this idea that the state always contains within it the seed of genocide, which is Zygmunt Bauman's argument in 1989 in Modernity and the Holocaust. So the touchstone of neoliberal governance becomes, and this is the really important bit for the discussion, I think, of, of superhero movies, the touchstone of neoliberal governance becomes, how do I empower the individual to make the best choices in the marketplace? Now, contrast this to the mantra of social democracy, which is how do I provide the best life for the most people? So these ideas have very different fields of action, society versus economy, very different modes of intervention direct wealth transfer and regulation on the one hand versus nudge and incentives on the other. So like, I feel like that, that narrative, that kind of political narrative has to underpin the development of these movies and the stories that these movies are based on. I, I don't know, Christian, if that kind of gels with your understanding of, of where they fit in the 40s and the 60s in particular. Well, it's been interesting. So coming out of Pulp Fiction, 1930s, uh, they, they, they try to make a new market for these uh, these pulp fiction characters that are falling out of um, favour because there's a new kind of uh, uh, conservatism. So suddenly characters like The Shadow and G8 and all the rest of them 
they're a little bit violent, they're a little bit bad. So they recontextualize into superheroes. And then World War II starts, uh, starts up and running. So they immediately uh, start becoming very, very patriotic characters. And superheroes really start off as just, they're just uh, World War II sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, mascots, you know? So there's Captain America. Steve, he's off. Steve Rogers, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's Captain America. He's seeing off the Nazis. There's Batman and he's dealing with um, infiltrators. Superman is, there's a great one where he actually throws a Nazi bundet operator into a plane's propeller, which I think is great. Oh my God, that's um, Indiana Jones. That's where that scene in Indiana Jones comes from. Almost certainly. So, um, and, and so while you've got like, and a lot of these guys, a lot of the, the, the young guys who made these characters, a lot of them are Jewish. Um, a lot of them had actually fled Europe. Um, their parents had fled Europe. And a lot of them were, were quite socially engaged. But, but they, you, know, you can't do very much because you're working in children's books. So they just basically, they just do, you know, war propaganda. And that's where you find like, there's a whole bunch of easily found online, you know, type in racist superhero covers and you're like, oh dear, oh dear, why is Batman doing to those poor Japanese soldiers? So, I, um, then, sorry, sorry, I was going to say, I read a quote from the creators of Superman and, and I can't remember the exact context, but they they said that they found it ironic that it was two Jewish boys for, who uh, created the all-American superhero. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, but then World War II comes back, well, World War II ends, the soldiers come back and they're a bit over it. They, they want to move on to men's adventure magazines and, you know, the, the early men's adult magazines and stuff like that. So comics kind of are there. They're not doing very well. And then 1950s, along comes a guy called Frederick Wortham and he writes a book called Seduction of the Innocent where he says superheroes are all uh, homosexual pervert communists. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh. Of course. <laughs> right. Now, Wortham is actually, surprisingly, he's actually like, he really, he was a good guy, but he was very much a Batman and Robin are homosexuals, and this is disgusting, so ban Batman and Robin. So it works out. So what happens is something called the Comics Code comes in, and there's a whole bunch of uh, very, very strict laws. Like, you can't do punching very much, and you can't show supernatural monsters, and you can't, and there's all these, these laws. And so if anyone's ever seen, like, the weird superhero covers where it's Batman dressed up in, like, a weird zebra suit, or Superman's got a weird lion head and stuff like that, it's because they couldn't tell stories of them going out and beating up criminals. <laughs> they, they weren't allowed. So, you know, like, I was say that you know, that all sounds really camp. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. I mean, the Hayes Code does something weirdly similar to movies in, 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 it's in some way. Yeah. It's absolutely the same. So suddenly Batman is no longer gunning down vampires in a mansion. He's running around going like, do you like my new pink cape? I'm going to space now. Because that's not, that's not gay in the 1950s. I know, it was incredible, right? <laughs> so you've got all these problems. Like, um, and then in the 1950s, Superman, it, it's entirely about Superman trying desperately not to get married to Lois Lane and teaching her lessons for daring to try to marry him and Lois Lane the plucky girl reporter who was in the 1930s like a a poisonous nightmare and b the the, the epitome of the the working woman just beginning to enter into into labor she she suddenly becomes like oh I'll, I'll trick that superman to marrying me one day then the 1960s come along and then everything is like really jfk you know confident young men technocracy is the answer science is the answer everything is going to be okay so superheroes have always been you know politically engaged not so much in the 50s because they weren't allowed to be but again in the 1960s then you start seeing uh, superheroes do begin to sort of hit a progressive era they do begin to be come involved at least a little bit with social issues and then the 80s comes along and then everything becomes really superman becomes like a slick corporate reporter and batman is suddenly back to being a cool international playboy and the flash is is a hard-working scientist and things like that so again it becomes really very much a, a story of conformity um poor old peter parker you know the lovable loser suddenly he's out going to nightclubs with uh, eddie murphy and he's got like his hot wife is at home always in hot underpants waiting for him because that's his reward for being a cool go-getter he gets the girl and then the 90s come along and then it all gets a bit weird in the 1990s so but Yes, absolutely. There, there is always this engagement with as superheroes change and adapt to the times. But then 9-11 comes along and at the same time superheroes jump up, uh, superhero films jump up. And I think that to my mind, almost all superhero films have this one long embarrassing response to 9-11. So that's my personal belief. It's just this continued obsession with destruction of less, uh, metro metropolitan landscapes. Yeah, because New York gets destroyed in almost every one of the Avengers films or I've seen. So that sounds about Gotham. right. 
Gotham City gets blown up, Metropolis, like that Superman film that was nightmare. <laughs> so where it's just destruction everywhere and it's just this continuous processing these same images over and over and over and it's like, guys, come on. Anyway. So just, just as an aside, but like I've observed that there's the same preoccupation with disaster in anime and it's not the same scale of human uh, impact, but Hiroshima definitely has informed everything all the way up to Akira at the least. And, and, and beyond, arguably. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anything anything that uh, deals with, with bodily transformation, I think, like, is, is you know, can, can draw from Hiroshima. But I think that even though the human scale was smaller, uh, 9-11 had a very similar impact on, on American culture. What's really interesting about it is the, so the, the, your, your idea about Hiroshima and, you know, bodily bodily transformation, but also just the visual of the white ball of light expanding oh, yeah, over the city centre yeah. is actually yeah. radically different to the very specifically 9-11 image of dust in the air and paper, like bits of paper kind of flying through the air and the kind of detritus of a very physical explosion. So like actually even just the aesthetics of the disasters are radically different. Um, um, one, of, one of the essayists I read, who's an American former naval person, uh, is writes online as Stone Kettle and he's actually written an essay on it about the way America re-traumatizes itself every year on the anniversary of 9-11 yeah. and how they're not moving on from it and well, how and it's yeah, actually really good. I will put right. it in the show notes because I think it's worth reading. And he was actually, you know, he's he's got a lot of um, military experience to draw on and he has written a very impactful essay on, on this, which I will, yeah, I'll put in the show notes. But Nick, I, w- I just want to return to, because I, I think that even the films, they don't even sort of have the courage to, to critique the state. On, on these technocratic market-based grounds because, of course, the big reveal is that the state is compromised by secret Nazis. Yeah, by Hydra. Yeah. yeah. Although so that's very, that's very Hayek, right? Like that's in, in a way yeah. it's kind of, it's kind of a childlike understanding of Hayek. You know, the, this is the road to totalitarianism. So like read metaphorically, Hydra isn't a bunch of secret Nazis. It's actually just the core tenets of yeah. Nazism, which to the neoliberals aren't, you know, kill the Jews. To the neoliberals, the core tenets of Nazism are the state should do everything, which is hilarious if you you've ever studied the Nazi state, which was a complete hodgepodge mess and could barely get anything done. Yeah. yeah. You know, so it's, it's, it's like, yeah, like I think, I think read metaphorically. Yeah. Cause, cause actually that, that, that particular Hydra bit where he, uh, where he being cap captain America sort of saves us all from this super state with its network of sky carriers that can dispense justice at a second's notice. Like it's such a neoliberal fever dream of what the state wants. Like Foucault's whole argument about neoliberalism was that the state wanted perfect knowledge of the economy. And most of its quest was to discover perfect knowledge of the economy and of course perfect knowledge of the economy means perfect knowledge of people which turns which immediately suggests a kind of surveillance system and so you know Foucault's point is that the neoliberals looked at that and went you can never have perfect knowledge of the economy because the map is not the territory and and the only thing you could have would be this kind of self-interested decision making within this enormous space and that's the story of Winter Soldier because you've got this state who finally gets you know surveillance capitalism together and connects it to guns and says we're going to launch this huge system that will just prune the body politic to be what we want and and you know cap with hayek and friedman behind him goes this is terrible this is totalitarianism i'd better get into this idea this marketplace and make some choices and and the dumb thing is in was it the next avengers film this is exactly what stark proposes right his global satellites Mm. that can Mm. find anything and fix the problem now it is presented as bad uh, yeah and cap yeah. fights him on it but you know this is one of the heroes thinking thinking the exact same thing but the difference mm. is it's the individual hero not the state mm. that's it because actually it's fine to be regulated by elon musk the only problem is is it's not fine to be regulated by um, not, i don't know it's not fine to the be United United re- re- regulated by elon musk let me tell you that well, definitely <laughs> so interview i mentioned with alan moore he had something to say, and this is quite a long quote, but I want to give the full thing. I think the impact of superheroes on popular culture is both tremendously embarrassing and not a little worrying. While these characters were originally perfectly suited to stimulating the imaginations of their 12 or 13 year old audience, today's franchise Ubermension, aimed at a supposedly adult audience, seem to be serving some kind of different function and fulfilling different needs. Primarily, mass market superhero movies seem to be abetting an audience who do not wish to relinquish their grip on A, their relatively 
reassuring child reassuring childhoods or B the relatively reassuring 20th century. The continuing popularity of these movies to me suggests some kind of deliberate self-imposed state of emotional arrest combined with a numbing condition of cultural stasis that can be witnessed in comics, movies, popular music and indeed right across the cultural spectrum. Christian, do you have thoughts on this R-rated infantilization? Well, I do. Now, personally, I think you've also got to remember is that Alan Moore has said very openly in the past that he does speak quite hyperbolically in interviews because it gets him in the papers and he thinks that's funny. Sure. Good on him. <laughs> and, and, you know, the only way that people listen to him at all uh, is that he, unless he overstates things dramatically, uh, they just they just go, oh, it's just old man Alan sitting in his magic cave. So he's a politician. style spliffs, you know. So, yeah, yeah, you know, because Alan's great, but, you know, he's a weird old guy. And, but, and you've worked, you know, I'll possibly have worked with one of his co I oh, yeah, a bunch of people. But let's not let's not go into that. That's a bit rude. So I don't want to be. Um, I know people. I'm famous. <laughs> um, oh, I mean, you know, connected. You know, I, I have known some people who've worked with Alan. Yes, yes. And I've kind of worked with them a little bit, but that was a long time ago. So, but I don't think that that he's actually particularly wrong in saying this. I, I think that absolutely, like, I, I, you watch a superhero film and people are like, "Wow, that's so cool!" And I don't know because I'm just like, what, "What?" But I don't think that. Superheroes are alone in being terrible. Uh, I think that if you have a look at, say, the Transformers films, they're sort of visually insane and nightmarish and their politics are so confusingly stupid that you can't even critique them. And they're based on um, a kid's just, toy. This is Sturgeon's law. 90% of everything is crap, yeah. right? Like this is, It's not 90% of superhero movies are crap. It's 90% of everything. But look at James Bond. I mean, I don't like James Bond films because I find them like incredibly, you know, um, um, conservative in their discussions and then their concerns and their uh, their ideology. They're so terrible. it's not like superheroes are alone, right? No, definitely not. So, but I think that people are so burned out from our current neoliberal system. We're all so burnt out from low wages and long hours and a confusing political class who have completely failed us by an economic system that is crumbling, by, you know, environmental catastrophes are coming. Everyone's got horrible diseases now. The world is coming to an end. I kind of don't necessarily get cross at people for enjoying superhero films, you know? I don't really think that it's a cultural crime. Just you really you just you're going with let them eat cake. <laughs> it's not mine to tell everyone how what to enjoy, you know? Like and I don't think it's let them eat cake. I just think it's like I can kind of understand that if someone just wants to sit down and spend two hours on a movie theater and I'm like, yeah yeah the good man hate the bad man. I'm not I'm, I don't think that is that individual choice to enjoy a film is, is a particularly uh, provocative I, I political situation. I guess there's especially a difference between... Because, especially because what are you going to do? Go and watch a Transformers film? Go and watch a Bond film? Go and watch a, a Star Wars film? They're all terrible. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I guess there's a difference between saying, look, I just saw this crappy movie and it, it's not very good, but I enjoyed it for the two hours because it's escapism and then saying, this is the best film I've ever seen. I think that's important as well as saying, oh, it's terrible, but I liked it. It's very, very different because from going, Because I like oh, a lot of terrible things, you know, and I fully admit they're terrible, but it's something I watch to relax or just to switch my mind off because I find that very difficult to do you know I have people telling me I have to learn to be mindful and and when they I get asked what I do to relax I'm like oh I do puzzles and I read I'm like I get told that's not switching off so I have to find ways to switch off but I don't pretend that the, sh- the shitty TV I watch or whatever is good TV I, I admit that it's shitty TV but I, I enjoy it right but I don't say it's high art but but when people say to me oh the MCU movies are the best thing ever made I'm like oh do you not understand critical analysis okay um, let's end the conversation here. You know, I think the other thing is- in this regard, like I'm, I'm, people tell me they like the Marvel films and I'm like, get, get better taste. Like I'm terrible. I'm just, I can't stand them at all. And well, I definitely agree. We all need our guilty pleasures or just our pleasures. Maybe sometimes we shouldn't yeah, be ashamed I, of our pleasures. No, no, absolutely. I don't think there should be guilt in pleasure. I agree. Um, yeah. I think I have told you many times you overthink things. <laughs> yeah, but, but I enjoy it. <laughs> what about you? That should be guilty. What about you, Nick, about the concept of R-rated infantilization? Yeah. So look, I, I want to pick up on two things that he said in that quote. I actually really like it. I think um, I, even if he's being polemic and even if he does worship a weird snake god, I enjoy some of the things that he has to say, Alan Moore, and I'd really like his comic books. But uh, 
I want to pick up on the, the, the notion of a numbing condition of cultural stasis. It immediately reminds me of one of my favourite Hannah Arendt quotes, which is about the perils of behaviourism and uh, a deadly sterile passivity that will result from it. Um, but that's by the by. I feel like, of course, it's cultural stasis. If all you do is reflect the culture back at itself, if all you do is read Twitter and then do whatever Twitter said in your movie, there's no possibility of change or progressivism there. Like all you can do is constantly, like you just get locked in a, in a hall of mirrors and everything looks the same and everything sounds the same and it's it's terrible garbage. So I think there's something there in what he's saying. Like, uh, of course, it's cultural stasis. This is a media juggernaut. This is Fox, Disney, Marvel getting together to not change anything, to not do anything. They don't. There's no reason for them to want to change anything. They're making billions of dollars from doing the same thing over and over and over again. All entertainment businesses, you know, whether it's EA or, or Fox or Disney, like they're driven by money and, and they are blockbuster driven, right? Because that's the easiest yeah. way to make money. You don't change anything. You don't do anything new. You remake things, you reboot things, you adapt old texts. Mm. Yeah, well, absolutely. And and what's what's kind of horrifying to me is that audiences are perfectly happy to keep buying it because there is space for change here, I think, in, in particular. But uh, there's one other thing I want to pick up on what Moore said, which is I, as a historian of the 20th century, take enormous issue with the phrase, the relatively reassuring 20th century. I cannot think of a single thing that is reassuring from the 20th century. It was one of the worst centuries ever, uh, apart from being punctuated by genocide and like globalized violence. Like there's just there's very little in it that's good. And what I find fascinating about that idea of people not wanting to relinquish their grip on the relatively reassuring 20th century is I want to get in there and say, no, like the, you know, maybe these comic books are actually a response to how destabilizing the 20th century was. Not a single assumption that was, that held true in 1901 made it all the way through to 2001. They were all taxed, questioned, you know, uh, destabilized, uh, really screwed up, especially by the kind of, you know, the extremely long mid-century period of, of the late 30s through to the middle 60s or, or middle 70s, depending on how you measure it. This is an incredibly de- destabilizing moment in which nothing nothing that we thought was going to work continued to work. And in a way, comic book uh, comic book stories, especially the kind of trajectory described by Christian earlier, kind of, they give you something to hang on to. It's like in a world in which it's really hard to recognize the genocide of indigenous people back home while you're fighting a, a genocide in in Germany, but also at the same time as, as you've been reading about this genocide in Germany since the 30s and suddenly in 1943, out of nowhere, the whole war is actually about the genocide, but you didn't think that was that's what the war was about when you started it in 1941. Like this is a difficult period of time to live through. And and actually there's an incredible, I guess, um, sucker in being able to go, hey, there's a big punchy man and he punched the bad guy and now I understand everything. So like, in a way, I don't think it is. It is about a relatively reassuring 20th century. I think it's about the incredibly flimsy narratives that we need to make the 20th century make sense in any way that lets you get out of bed in the morning and not just want to kill yourself. I just, um, I just want to interject. Um, my personal favorite uh, uh, comic book creator is Jack Kirby. Is his name? Mm. Jack Kirby is the guy who invented all the stuff that Stan Lee said that he invented. <laughs> and um, just nerds out there going like, "Oh, Christian, that's not quite correct." No, he, <laughs> it's him. It's him. Right? It's him. It's him. Stop pretending it was him. Now, Kirby, of course, was a was a veteran. He was a Jew and he was a World War II veteran. He saw combat. He killed men. And when he came back, he, ultimately this this led him towards the creation of uh, what is, in my mind, the world's greatest supervillain. You know, this character called Darkseid, the god of evil. And what, what he really is, is that he is the god of fascism because he's the god of control. He's the god of, I want to take away your individuality and I want to replace the fear and doubt and suspicion of your neighbors. And so I, I, I think that the there were lots and lots of, of, of veterans of World War II that, that did create comics and did go on to try and dramatize uh, their experiences. But I think that only Kirby was really the one who sort of came in and said, you don't understand what it was like to be a Jewish guy listening to Hitler. And I think that that is ultimately is, is that what most of his career, and of course he was the guy who invented Captain America. He was the guy who drew that famous Captain America punching um, Hitler in the face uh, image. Nazis used to try and come around to his office and beat him up, <laughs> but he beat them up instead. So um, I, I think that, that the response of superheroes towards World War II is pretty underwhelming, except for the odd occasional case of the superior creator. So I, I do think it is interesting that that you are right, that, that a lot of a lot of people who exited lived before the war and after the war came out very, very different and very, very changed because, of course, their culture was completely different and changed. But there are some very interesting responses. And I, and I would, um, New Gods by Jack Kirby, I think the finest. And, of course, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman, which was also a response where where the, the very odd creator of Wonder Woman said, men have failed. We must now hand over control of 
of society to women, which is, of course, a problem in and of itself. But he was, yeah, that was his response to World War Two. What about your thoughts, Dave? I just want to maybe, maybe zoom out a little bit here and talk about what mature themes are, because, you know, this is part of the infantilization. A lot of people seem to think that if there's sex, nudity or violence, that's mature because kids shouldn't have to handle that. And while I don't disagree that, you know, that you, you can't expose children to all the facets of human existence all at once, the word mature is wrong here because I think that these things are actually the opposite. Only immature people see actual meaning in these things alone. Mature media are the media that asks the reader to confront their assumptions about something. There's nothing wrong with immature media, but conflating the two is both easy and dangerous when, you know, a nipple is scandalous as a gaping wound and you're not asking yourself why you equate the two. YouTube film critic Patrick Willems did a recent video on this asking what the point of R-rated superheroes were. And I kind of feel like he stole our thunder by releasing it two months before we were ready to talk about this. You know, he talks about Batman and Superman and the like and how they have been stolen from children, right? Like as- as Stolen? As, well- Sorry, go on, go well, on, sorry. Well, <laughs> what, 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 well, what he's saying here is that by making these blockbusters MA-15, are like these these characters are no longer written for children right the, these there are kids who like we all grew up with the concept of batman and superman and and what they engaged with you you mentioned the 90s i, I kind of feel like the 90s uh, and how they got weird. This is this is where that trend started. But once we started getting these films aimed at adults, the child-targeted uh, media uh, is not is no longer as re- as relevant. And that that's sort of what Willems is saying. You know, adults won't give up their nest, their childhood nostalgia. They're holding on to onto these uh, characters, and the characters no longer belong to children. There's room for superhero fiction targeting adults. This is what Willem says. We don't actually enjoy spandex and capes. Let's get our own new characters and give Superman and Batman and Spider-Man back to the 13-year-olds. I've got a few two things to say to that, because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very interested in this whole you've taken away characters from children, because that's nonsense. That's, that doesn't make any sense. If I do a Robin Hood story, where he's fun and he's playful and he's playing the loot and he's like pulling tricks on the sheriff of Nottingham. And then I do a grim Marxist cautionary tale of wealth hoarding. They're both valid Robin Hood stories, you know? Space uh, for both. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and, oh, sure. and, and there's a thing related that despotic hold of late stage capitalism has on our cultural imagination. You know, it's going to release because it's not, I don't think it's necessarily got to do with the, the viewer's poor taste. It's just that what else are you going to go and see, you know? So, well, uh, I, I guess that's what he's saying. Let's make new things for adults to see and leave the you know and leave Batman and Superman and Spider-Man for for you know younger ages. I have argued for a long time that The Matrix is exactly that. Uh, the Matrix is a pretty transparent ripoff of one of my favorite comics, a comic called The Invisibles. Damn, was uh, you, yeah. you literally stole what I was going to say. In the oh. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, I just well, want to point okay, out. You talk about The Invisibles. I'll talk about John Wick. Man, John Wick's uh, amazing. Um, I just want to mention that there are superhero stories uh, going on in the adult space, which most of you may not be aware of. And it's going on in novels and it's going on in largely in the romance area. And it's original non-IP characters. Often it's a superhero trying to live a normal life and having a romance. Uh, Often it could be a superhero and a supervillain having a relationship in their normal lives and then going off to their professional lives. I I can put a couple of titles in the the show notes that I haven't read them all, but I've had recommended. And there's another standout, which is kind of romance adjacent. It's got, I guess, sort of queer undertones, but not actually a queer story. And it's V.E. Schwab's Vicious, which is not so much about superheroes and supervillains as two superpowered antiheroes and all the shades of grey that go with that. And V.E. Schwab also wrote A Darker Shade of Magic. She's very into shades of grey and... Um, Hopefully not 50 of them. <laughs> no, no, no. My, uh, my publisher would be very cross at me if I didn't mention that I've worked in this space as well. Yes, and, well, I was uh, hoping you'd you say something. You you can read my comic Unmasked, which is exactly about this. Sorry. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes so, too. So, at, like, I, I want to latch on to, uh, okay. to to the concept of anti-hero. I think anti-hero, anti-heroism is a mature theme. Yeah. And that's kind of what, you know, like, if you take away the shitty plots and, and the poor characterizations, like, there is current hunger for anti-heroes in adult media. 
Well, that's the boys, isn't it? Yeah, in mature. Well, the boys is also satire. Like, I want to like walk away from satire. We are interested in antiheroes because our lives are more complicated than than you know, red, white, and blue. Um, than punching Nazis. In this case, is antihero just a word for normal person? Yes. Like, I mean, the frustration I have with with this notion of heroes is that it's just it's one of the most thoroughly abused words and concepts in the twenty first century. Like, you know, I mean, it was one thing when our heroes were, you know, the the silent generation who stormed the beaches at Normandy, brackets forgetting the other six years of war across however many other places that American white Americans didn't fight in, close brackets. But then heroes became, you know, our first responders in the not to continue the 9-11 thing. And now heroes are just about anyone who does yeah. what the government wants. It's oh, bizarre. It, well, like, it's hyper-individualism, right? Everyone's a hero. Yeah, um, everyone's a hero. And it's just so boring. And, and the idea that the only way we can get people invested in the stories of normal people is to call them anti-heroes and thus riff off the question of heroes. Well, uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm drawing a long bow. Well, well, this this is this is kind of what I'm saying, right? I said that we don't give enough credit to kids, but I also say that we need to scaffold how we present ideas to them. So, as adults, yes, everyone. I think I think many adults. Uh, whether or not they understand or acknowledge it, crave that shades of grey, look for anti-hero attributes in themselves and to have that mirrored in their media. But the problem is we latch on and we try to tell those stories about the uncomplicated heroes of our childhood. Is this just what the word dark means when yes. we talk about dark I and gritty? Like dark and just, gritty. As, like it as literally just means... It just means, you know, story with consequences or like yeah. person with confusing morality slash motives. Like, and we call it dark because, because we can't get past, like, again, like the, the sort of the vocabulary of, of, of the genre is, is to the, to the, you know, the kind of the, the Marvel version of the genre is so stunted that it's like dark. Like that's the only way you can talk about, about real world consequences and, and real world difficulty and real world morality. It's, oh, it's really dark. It's like, no, it's just normal. I suspect that dark is just the marketing term to say the, the emotions that you will be experiencing are, um, anger, resentment, <laughs> fear, hate, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, like it's, it's Batman and he's gouging out some dude's eyes and you're like, yeah. what the, what the hell? Yeah, you will feel slightly yeah. confused. Dark just means you will feel slightly confused until yeah. until right at the end when they give you a yeah. line to make it all go away. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. That's it for part one of our podcast on the politics of superheroes. We've had such an amazing time with Christian that we need to have two episodes to do it all justice. What do you think about our quotes from Alan Moore? Do you feel that these extended hero universes have infantilised their audiences? Do you agree with Nick that the writing is lazy, just Twitter comments reflected back on the screen? Or do you agree with Dave that the characters like Batman and Superman have been stolen from children? You can find show notes for this episode on our website, podcultureoz.com, and you can share your thoughts about the episode on Twitter at podculture underscore oz. I'd like to give a huge thanks to our guest Christian from Proland Publishing for joining us. It's been fantastic having him as a guest. You can find out where to find him in the show notes. And don't miss part two of The Politics of Superheroes, which includes even more controversies, out in a few weeks. In the meantime, why not check out our past episodes, which include Life in Lockdown, Omega Point Theory, Sense8 and Space Cannibals, Zombie Apocalypses and Dystopias, and MMOs for World Peace. You can find these episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google, Anchor, and wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you in part two of The Politics of Superheroes soon. Yeah.